Welcome to another episode of Tread Lightly. I'm host, runner, coach, and author Amanda Brooks of Run to the Finish. And I'm host, runner, mother, run coach with a master's of exercise science, Laura Norris. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened already and the feedback that you've sent us. In fact, a number of you had sent us ideas for episodes, and that is guiding a few of our next discussions. Yes, so be sure to keep it coming. Let us know what you want to hear, any questions you have, and also rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. We're here to break down popular topics in running so that you can train smarter. Speaking of training smarter, what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes you've made in training in all your time running? Yeah, so I'm going to like skip past the early runner in the late 2000 aughts who did everything hard and kind of go ahead to something that like I should it kind of was like I should have known better. Um, so one of the biggest training mistakes I made was for my first marathon um, back in 2015. I ramped up mileage and intensity a lot at the same time. I followed the Hanson's intermediate plan because like at that point I had been running for like since 2008, I had done a few like half marathons. I had a good training background, but I was like, oh, I can do this. And the Hanson's plan works super well for some people. But I went to from like 40-ish miles a week to 60 miles a week over the course of that plan. And I was doing really big, intense workouts. I think I figured it out that it was like about 26 to 28% of the week was intense workouts, maybe even more because the long runs kind of dabbled into a gray area with how they did their methodology. And again, it works for some people, but it, it was not the right choice for a first time marathoner. Luckily, I didn't get injured, but I was really overtrained. Yes. I've seen that before. <laughs> um, so interestingly, on my side, it was probably related to the same idea. I was training for another marathon. All of a sudden, like it seemed all my friends were Boston qualifying. So I decided that should be my goal. And I immediately changed all of my training to run everything much faster. Um, I had IT band issues and I went to the sports doctor and got a cortisone shot a couple of weeks before the marathon. And so, of course, I felt great. And that meant I went into the marathon full tilt. And by mile 13, I could just barely walk. But I was so determined to finish because I believed that that is what a runner is supposed to do that I drug myself through the remainder of the course. I was literally doing 20 minute miles at some points. Um, this was back when like we didn't all just carry a cell phone. So I stopped and asked a spectator to use their cell phone so that I could call David because I was like, I'm going to be like hours later than predicted. And there wasn't a little app where he could track me. So, um, Yes, it was the dumbest mistake I have ever made. I could not run for six months oh. after that race because I made my IT band so bad. But it taught me a ton of things. One of them being like cortisone is a nice anti-inflammatory, but 
too often we use it and then think that means everything is fine so we just go right back to all the hard stuff and that's not really what it's designed for <laughs> oh that that sounds like a tough experience i mean kudos for finishing because it's not easy to walk a marathon that's a lot of time on your feet it is and honestly like i mean of course in retrospect i can say like gosh the braver choice would have been to say i need to quit this race um but i just didn't at the time i didn't believe that's what runners did runners stick it out um but now i'm like no runners recognize they have one body and they need to take care of it yeah or at least, you know, something else I think comes with age. Like, I feel like when I was in my 20s also, kind of like going back to the ants as an example, I was like, I can throw it all at myself. Like, my body can handle it. I recover from anything. Then we get past 25 and we <laughs> pass 30 and we, we learn a little bit more to respect our bodies. That is 100, 100% true. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit because it sounds like we have both made this intensity mistake. And that is where this idea of 80-20 running comes into play. So 80-20 at the most basic level is you want 80% of your volume to be easy, 20% in that hard zone. So this is something that has been around for a really long time. However, in the early 2000s, there was an American exercise scientist called Steven Seller, and he is the one who really brought this to us. Um, so he started looking at endurance athletes across all different disciplines. So cycling, Nordic skiers, runners, swimmers, triathletes. And he found very consistently at that elite level that they did about 80% of their training at low intensity. And that was really fascinating to see that it was so consistent across so many disciplines. And then Matt Fitzgerald, I feel like, really popularized it for the rest of us. So he came out with a book specifically called 80-20 Running. He has 80-20 coaching products and teams and plans. So, I mean, he really made it popular, and I thank him for that um, because I can point to so much of his work and his studies to convince people that it's beneficial. Um one of the other things that was interesting was Seller kept investigating this. And so in 2014, he actually started monitoring the training of nine more recreational triathletes. And what they found was a really strong correlation between the time spent at low intensity and the type of performance they had. So what they found was those who spent only around 68% of their time at low intensity did less well than those who came closest to that 80-20 rule. So we've actually seen that in some other studies now too, but those who get closest to this 80-20 tend to have better results. So if you think that by training harder, more is going to get you a better result, we're actually seeing that is not the case. So really, really fascinating. It is. And I, what I find it so fascinating is that it worked in like cycling and cross-country skiing, which don't have the biomechanical 
breakdown that running has. So like it used to be thought like, oh, since you're cycling, you can get away with so much more intensity because like you're on a bike, you're not like having a ton of impact. But if we see these like cyclists doing tons of low intensity, despite the fact that they could probably handle a lot of high intensity without getting injured, makes it even more amazing how like effective this is. And then especially applicable for us of runners who are dealing with high rates of impact loading. Yeah, I think the fact that we were seeing it everywhere was really interesting. And I know some people will say that like, well, just because it works for elites doesn't mean it works for the rest of us. But again, that's why we've now seen these other studies. And I think both of us have enough athlete examples to say, no, it really does work for the everyday runner. And so we'll talk a little bit more about implementation and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I'm going to break down a little bit of like, some of the, the training theory behind 80-20 running, because there's actually a couple different ways that we can get to that 80-20% distribution. Um, you've probably heard of the terms polarized training. Um, I'm going to break that down and what it actually is. And then there's another type of roughly 80-20 running called pyramidal training. Um, and then there's threshold training, which actually is not 80-20 running. And it's kind of what some people are doing, but really high level elites, I don't know if I would recommend it for a recreational runner. Um, but I want to address it because it's really trendy right now with the Norwegians and it just seems to be all over the place. Um, so a lot of this is coming from a newly released 2023 breakdown of threshold training, all this info, but we're going to cover all. So in research literature, um, we use three zones instead of the five zones that we use in training prescriptions. So this can get a little confusing. Um, so in the research literature, there's zone one, zone two, and zone three. Easy, moderate, hard. That gets confusing, I think, because like we talked in a recent episode about zone two training in a five zone structure. Um, but in the research literature, it's a little different. But easy zone one is cut off by like aerobic threshold, uh, kind of where, you know, marathon pace for faster athletes, um, where you kind of start using more carbs, less fat. Um, you're not working hard, but a little bit more fatigue. The moderate zone, zone two, is from that point up until your lactate threshold, or if some say it's up to critical speed, which is actually like 10K pace in really fast athletes, 30, 30 to 40 minute pace. But essentially, like it's moderate to moderately hard in like training. Um, we can just think like tempo runs fall into that zone, threshold runs. Um, and then zone three is really hard, like VO2 max, above VO2 max. If you were to use a normal five zone scale, um, zone that easy zone. Um, in the training literature would be like zones one and two on the five zone scale. So easy recovery, um, zone two, zone two of the research literature is zones three and part of zone four of the five scale system. So everything from like marathon pace up to like lactate threshold, maybe critical speed in some athletes, but that like moderately hard tempo effort. And then zone three would be part of zone four and all of zone five. So like your 5k pace intervals, um, the lactate tolerance training that like some track athletes do, uh, VO2 max work, sprinting, all that stuff that like really leaves you huffing and puffing. Um, so, and they use like blood lactate measurements and breathing changes to delineate these zones. Um, 
So in polarized training, 80% of that training is easy. Zone one in the literature, zone one and two in practical training. Um, so polarized is almost so 80% easy. Then that 20% is in the hard domain. So lots of interval work, really hard interval work, um, 5K pace, VO2 max, sprinting. And then polarized training doesn't spend much time in that moderate zone. So in some of those models, like you're really not doing many tempo runs. Um, you're not doing like a lot. Of, you might do some threshold work depending on how you want to cut off the zones, but you're doing really hard work and not a lot of moderate work. Um, so you're either going super easy or super hard, not much in between. Um, 20% of your training in interval work is actually quite hard. So that's usually at least two interval sessions per week. Um, pyramidal training is really commonly used amongst marathoners, especially like world-class marathoners. Arturo Casado has some really great research on this. And it's kind of like the name suggests, it's the pyramid. So at the bottom, you have 80%, roughly 80% easy running. Then you go up and you have a good chunk of moderate running. And then at the top, you have a teeny little bit of high intensity running. Um, so that's where like you are doing 80% easy Then maybe you're doing like some threshold work, tempo runs, those like efforts we think a lot about with marathon and half marathon training. And then you're doing a tiny bit of interval work, maybe just hill repeats or strides, but it's not a bulk of your training. Um, and then the threshold model is like actually less than 80% easy. It's up to 35% moderate. Um, it's really draining training and we really only see it in like world-class athletes, um, doing those like double threshold workouts that you should not do if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. So let's talk about how 80, 20 might really look in training, um, and kind of how we even use it. So, one thing that I think is important to note is that we're talking about the total volume of all of your workouts. So this is not just your runs. If you are also on your Peloton bike, if you are also strength training, this is about the total volume of your work for the week. And that is really important because I have seen this pretty frequently that folks are like, yeah, my runs are 80-20 and then they're throwing in two super hard spin classes and a bunch of other stuff and they are exhausted and injured. Um, so nope, it's the total volume of your week. I think it's also important to note that just because the rule says 80-20 doesn't mean that initially you are prepared for 20% of your week to be hard. Um, so even in my case, I have been running for 20 years, actually over 20 years. And a lot of the times I'm more at like 10% because that's where I actually feel best, perform best. I'm not fatigued. Um, so you have to know yourself and build up to that. <laughs> um, so, um, also important, this doesn't, what's the best way to phrase it? If you are running less, this still applies. So I think we also tend to believe, well, sure, those athletes are running a hundred miles a week. So of course they need 80% to be easy, but if you're doing 30 miles a week, 20 miles a week, this actually still applies to you. So 
it really and truly applies pretty much across the gamut. Um, I would say like the exception is more folks who are only doing orange theory. So the only time they're running is when they're doing those intervals. They're never going out for a five mile, three mile run all by itself. So it's, that's an entirely different way of looking at running. Um, so for anyone training for something running on your own, this applies. Okay. So that 20% that we're talking about, like Laura said, it is that moderate to hard workouts. And I definitely think oftentimes we aren't going hard enough in some of that 20%. And what the percentage of that really kind of depends on you and your goals. Um, But certainly we can fall into with marathon training that, oh, I don't need to ever run 5K effort but you do. So really looking at that 20% and seeing some variety in there is actually pretty important. Now, how do we count that 20%? I get this question a lot. Say you have an interval workout and you do a two mile warm up before you ever start your intervals. That two miles is part of your 80%. So it's not, okay, I had a seven mile today that had intervals in it. The entire seven miles doesn't have to count towards your hard work. It's literally the time that you're doing the hard work and some of the recovery. So in that recovery, your heart rate is still elevated. The body is truly trying to like bring it back down. So all of that time, all of that mileage, we want to count towards that 20% hard. Okay. Let's try and look at like an example and kind of show like maybe what this might look like. So for ease, I've kind of picked some numbers that'll make this easy. So say you're running a 35 miles per week and maybe on Monday you have rest. Tuesday is an easy day. Your Wednesday speed workout, maybe there's 30 minutes of it that are speed Thursday, easy run. Friday, you rest. Saturday, long run with some goal marathon pace. Sunday, easy. You've also got a strength session, hopefully a couple of those, (laughs) and even a little bit of plyo. So easy math. Say it was a 10-minute mile for average. So 350 minutes of running, 50 minutes of strength, roughly 400 minutes of workout time. Okay, so 400 minutes of workout time means our max amount of time that we want to spend in that hard zone is 80 minutes. So roughly 60 minutes of that might have come in your runs between your speed work and your Saturday long run. Maybe 10 minutes of that was because you did plyometrics. And 10 minutes could actually be from your strength training. So when you are doing hard and heavy strength, that is taxing. Um, And so depending on what your strength looks like, some of your intensity may need to be counted from your strength training. And that depends on what you're doing. Um, But that's kind of a way to like take it, break it down. I think it's easier to look at total minutes of workout time often than trying to figure out mileage and kind of break it down there. Um, But that's an overview of like how it might work in a week. That was fantastic. Um, and it will look different based on like your training phase. So like we always have periodization going around, you'll do base training, you'll build up for a race. Um, and I think in Matt Fitzgerald's books, especially his newest one, the train like a pro, I think it is. Um, he has like a really good breakdown that like, you'll probably start 
your marathon training or half marathon training with less than 20% hard and build up to roughly 20% hard at the peak. So I think he had like one I was looking at that started at maybe like 12% hard. And I kind of do that with my athletes also like we might be doing some like hill repeats or stuff and base training. It's not 20% hard. And then we kind of build it up over the race. And like sometimes in marathon training, you end up with like maybe slightly more, you know, maybe like 75% easy, 25% hard because you had a really big marathon pace workout in, but you're not doing that every single week. And if you were to probably average it over the course of your training cycle, you'd land right at 20%. But I think that point you made, Amanda, about 20% is like an upper limit. It's not the absolute must and that some people need less and that you need to build, gradually build up there is super, super important. If you take one thing away from the episode, take that away that she said. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Tell us more of what's happening here when like in our bodies as we're kind of looking at these different zones and different ways of training. And so maybe why it's so important that we look at that split. Yeah. So I think the really big important thing from 80-20 running is since you're most likely, you know, essentially if you're doing like a pure middle training, which is kind of what Matt Fitzgerald uses in his 80-20, what we use, um, you're going through all intensity zones. And so what that means is you're getting the benefits from all different types of running. You're not leaving anything behind in your fitness. And that's really important because our body uses different signaling pathways based on different um, exercise intensities. Now, I don't want to be like too like reductionist and be like, only this is happening at this intensity because it's all kind of this spectrum. But when you run really easily, easy, you get this calcium signaling pathway that causes protein expression um, that leads to mitochondrial biogenesis. So those oxidative powerhouses of your cell that make a lot of energy from oxygen plus carbohydrates and fat, um, they grow, they proliferate, there's more of them. And so you just become better at turning oxygen, carbohydrates, and fat into energy. Um, with that, you see your cardiac output increase. So more oxygen rich blood is going to the working muscles. You have more capillaries developing in your type one, your slow twitch muscle fibers. So again, more oxygen can get to those muscles and both your carbohydrate and fat oxidation improve. So you're getting better at using those substrates plus oxygen to make energy. Um, easy running so that you know, zone one and two in the five zone model, zone one in the research model is also not a lot of stress on your nervous system. It's not a lot of stress on your musculoskeletal system. Like it's just enough. So you can do this higher volume without having huge injury risk. You can do this higher volume without having mental burnout. Um, so that's like really hugely beneficial is it lets you train more and go through a full training cycle without breaking your body or overtraining. Yeah. And we talk a ton about all of those benefits in the zone two episode. So for sure, if you're feeling like, oh, I need to understand more about what easy is, listen to that episode. It'll explain a lot more of how to hit that 80%. Absolutely. Um, and then in the moderate intensity zone, um, so zone two in the research, zone three and part of four, in the five zone model, you have more AMPK signaling that causes, again, still like mitochondrial proliferation, but it's kind of working through different pathways. Um, this is this cellular signaling and the 
protein expression from it are leading to adaptations in your heart that increase your plasma volume, that increases actually like the mass of some chambers of your heart, such as the left ventricle. Um, so your heart is getting actually bigger. It increases your stroke volume and it increases your overall cardiac output. So just more blood is going to those muscles. Um, and a lot of times when all these increase, your heart rate will actually like lower over time. And so like you can do more training at a lower heart rate. Um, that's a benefit of zone two, but it's also a benefit of these moderate zones. Um, your lactate shuttling improves. So our bodies can actually take lactate in our blood and bring it back into the cells and the muscles and um, convert the lactate into glucose and oxidize that for energy. Um, so that actually then has a glycogen sparing effect that you aren't depleting yourself as much. Your body's shuttling this lactate. It's using it for energy. You're saving some of your precious glycogen stores. You're just improving your overall like endurance and stamina in this zone, um, which is really cool. And that's really important for people looking to do like anything over a 10K, I'd say, where you can be limited by like endurance and stamina. Um, zone three, that really hard zone, so zone, part of zone four and part of zone five in the five zone model, um, you don't want to spend too much time here because if you spend too much time here, you put huge stress on your nervous system. And when your autonomic nervous system is actually really stressed, your cardiac output reduces. So you kind of see that like an athlete to get overtrained or burn out or do too much intensity, like all of a sudden they plateau or things get worse. So don't spend a lot of time here. But the reason we want to spend some time here is there's improved capillary density in both your slow twitch and your fast twitch muscles. Um, your fast twitch muscles, the ones you use to run faster, uh, have better aerobic metabolism abilities and your neuromuscular motor unit recruitment improves. So we have all these different benefits in all these zones. And the beauty of 80-20 is that you get all those benefits without totally frying your nervous system. Love it. I'm so glad someone asked about this and we got to talk about it because it's something you and I definitely both preach. It's the way we do planning. Um, but I think it helps when anyone is looking at their own plan to sort of figure out how to put things together and understand kind of why they might want different levels, different types of things, and how not to go too far overboard. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, if like if it's a question with your training, like reach out to a coach. A coach can really, really help you with this. Obviously, reach out to Amanda, reach out to me, but any coach worth their grain is probably doing this in some way or another. Um, and be wary of like any plan that has tons of tons of intensity. Like I kind of remember those like run less plans from like 2010 that I guess they had like cross training in them, but everything was such high intensity. And we've really shifted away from that. Yeah, I think it's great that we're seeing, we've seen more research and more information around it because I I very much remember that plan. And that was the entire thing was, you can only run three days a week. We're going to make them all hard as possible. <laughs> um, okay, so let's finish up today. We are going to do a listener question that we had. So certainly keep those coming. You can find us over at Tread Lightly Running on Instagram if you want to shoot us a message there. Um, but what do we have today? Yeah. So this questioner was from, or this question was from a listener. Um, and it was about, does core strength improve your running? Like, will your running performance improve if you do a bunch of workouts focused on core strength? 
I love this one. Let's be honest. I created a whole 30-day core program because I believe in it, but also specifically, we're talking about hips, glutes, and abs. We aren't just talking about working your abs. Um, And so for me, because I have found it easy to sneak these moves into people's warmups, I'm a huge fan of it because if I can get you to do five minutes for your hips, your glutes, and your abs before you run, your injury risk drops so significantly. And if I can drop your injury risk, then I can help you train consistently, or you can help yourself train consistently. And that is where we see the benefits because without injury in that consistency, then we're able to really progress. So there's a million other things I could say on it, but that's, that's my initial take. What's yours? Um, yeah, so I am a big fan of it, but I kind of like you, I sneak it into my runner's workouts. So I'm not like, let's go do 15 minutes of ab work on the floor. Um, a lot of my runners get strength training and usually we have it woven in like in a warm up for a strength workout in a warm up before run. My runners do a lot of band work in their warm ups. Um, and then like if you're strength training and if you're doing squats and lunges and push-ups, you're using your core in those also, sometimes depending on how much you load them to like a higher degree than if you just got on the floor and did crunches. Um, but then I also like to sneak in things like I'm sure a lot of my athletes listening are very familiar with like dead bugs and certain plank variations, um, all these like anti-rotational core movements that really work on core stability that helps you have like better running form. Um, you know, keeping that like upright posture with a slight forward lean rather than like slouching forward because your core muscles are fatigued. Um, so that's to say like, I'm a big fan of it, but I encourage like sneaking it in in a sustainable way rather than being like, I have to add all this extra work to my training and don't forget to get on the floor and do my crunches. A hundred percent. And like you said, if you are strength training you should be getting a lot of core benefit there because you should be activating your actual abdominals while you're lifting heavy. You should be doing squats with a weight and Bulgarian squats. And so all these things are being hit, but I agree. I still like the, I like the mini bands. I like that little stuff that we can sneak in to a warm up or wherever it might be. Um, so for our vote, yes, the benefits are there. It's worth doing. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll just add on real quick. If you're a postpartum runner or like you're coming back from like a surgery or something, you might even want to invest more time in that. So like postpartum running is that time where you actually do want to get on the floor and do a lot of core work. I did the ReCore program, um, ReCore Fitness after having my C-section and it was like a huge game changer. So like there are seasons of life where core work might be like an even higher priority because like after a C-section or birth, you're not ready to go do a bunch of goblet squats or single leg deadlifts. You need to like ease yourself back in and that's where core work, Pilates, pelvic floor work can really help you be able to handle those higher strength training things as well as be able to run safely again. A hundred percent. After I had knee surgery and actually leading up to knee surgery, my core work was more than double um, because I really did need to work that entire area and it made a massive difference in my comeback. So um, that's a great reminder. <laughs> um, but yeah, keep questions like this coming. Sometimes we'll tack them on to the end of a podcast episode. Um, there's no such thing as a stupid question. So please ask. 
Agree. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tread Lightly. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe.